Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. tonight uh here's your here's your warning i'm on my own tonight uh for those of you who don't know mark lives in florida he's talked about that in the past and while he his family and i believe their property are all safe he said uh the message i got from him said he had no damage everyone's safe it the inf- there's still problems that were caused by you know a category five hurricane coming through part of the state Mark is consequently unable to be here with me. Um, you know, I got to say, I believe that he both could be here and could have seen the movie. I think he had just like a perfect excuse. Because we all know Mark, not a big fan of the scary things. And there's a hurricane. So he had a built-in excuse to just not see the movie, not have to come on here and talk about it. Um, I kid, but... You know, it occurs to me as I sit here thinking about this, we probably could have just put this off until next week when he'd probably be available. There's nothing next week. This is our only review for the month of September because there's nothing else of any real import coming out. Could have just postponed this a week. Yep, I'm smart. We plan ahead here. Um, Yeah, sure. Anyway, tonight, uh, since it's just me, I will do my darndest, and I'm going to provide you all with a review of the first big screen adaptation of 
one of the most famous novels uh, in Stephen King's career, It. It's also one of the longest. And when you say that it's one of Stephen King's longest, that, that should mean something. You know, the, He can write very short stories. He can also write long ones. Um, this thing's been a, a, a runaway success. So, uh, all right. I believe I insisted this be on the schedule because I figured it was going to be a big release. It's a very dead time of year. And full disclosure, I'm a massive Stephen King fan. I love this story. Uh, I saw trailers for this and got psyched. I was so psyched. So I'm going to do my best to rein in my, you know, personal enjoyment as much as possible and provide you with a, as fair and balanced a review as one can do on you know, by themselves. Uh, but just since I would normally ask, you know, what did we, what did you know, Mark or I go into this thinking? expectations I did not expect it to be as good as it was and I had I actually had relatively high expectations for this film uh, and it exceeded them in a lot of very important ways and I, I'll get into details in a minute or two but I was I was very nervous when they started announcing this I actually wasn't sold on the con the when they started like releasing stills for Pennywise, I was not terribly fond of the character design. I have no frame of reference for the actor who played Pennywise. I'm Bill. Bill? I got the list right here. Yeah, Bill Skarsgård. I know two other Skarsgårds that I've seen, and I'm, I'm familiar with their work. I'm not familiar with Bill's. So I was nervous, and then once the actual trailers started coming out, uh, I, I was sold. I was completely sold. I went to a the first showing I could reasonably get to. Uh, actually, all four of us, my three brothers and I, we all went. We all saw it, uh, and we were not alone. We'll talk about that when we get to the money. But I was I was very excited about this, and the film wildly exceeded the majority of my expectations. I I, I need to apologize to everyone who, if you know me and you know how tepid my enthusiasm can be um i've been upselling this a lot <laughs> to people who haven't seen the movie yet and have you know asked my opinion or listened to this podcast uh i apologize if elements of what i'm about to say might set too high an expectation for you i mean every word that i say but i'm also aware that there have been some legitimately great movies that have been oversold prior to seeing them to the point where no matter how great it is when you actually see the film, it's something of a letdown because your expectations have been raised unfairly high. So I'm, I'm trying to balance out a little bit for that. Um, all right. Here's your spoiler warning. Uh, brief plot synopsis incoming. You know, we open this movie with, and this is weird because the only other time this material has been adapted for anything other than the novel was for the miniseries from 1990? Uh, yeah, 1990. And still, for some reason, despite that being the only visual representation, I mean, a lot of people read the book, that opening bit with, you know, poor little Georgie following his 
paper boat down the storm drain through a through a rainstorm, and then being confronted with Pennywise the Dancing Clown in the sewer. That's one everyone remembers. Um, <laughs> so we again we open with that. It's a very uh, I I don't know maybe it's just me maybe I'm too much in my own little bubble here but it's in a it's a very effective opening bit. And the fact that in this case, they actually started earlier construction of said boat. Uh, and you get to, because there's nope, save that. Sorry. Trying not to ramble here. Mark's not here to kind of crack the whip and say, you know, don't editorialize anyway. Uh, you know, Georgie is outside playing. He stumbles across the clown. Well, the pseudo clown, it's not actually a clown. Um, it, Pennywise, who then bites his arm off and drags his body down into the sewers. Uh, that's a, that was an interesting divergence from the novel, and I'll, I got to talk about this more when I just talk about the adaptation. Uh, this is in the midst of the summer of when do they set this? 1988, 88, 89, 88, the tail end of 88. 88 into 89. Yeah, yeah. And this, you know, there during this bit of school year, there's a lot of kids that go missing. This is just during one of the periods of times when this entity is active. We are introduced to uh, the Losers Club, which is a group of friends who are both called losers by every other major group in the school and have just kind of since adopted it. Um, Bill, the older brother of Georgie, Richie, who never shuts up, but in a very endearing way. I mean, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't refer to him as on the spectrum because even in uh, you know in the setting for this movie, Asperger's wasn't nearly as prevalent a diagnosis in you know '88, '89, but it was still kind of a thing. Uh, Stanley and Eddie. Eddie's a bit of a hypochondriac and has a very hypochondriac mother. And again, they're just this collection of friends who kind of came together in large part because they, you know, you kind of have no one else type scenario. They've known each other for a long time. They're good friends. Uh, we also meet three members of the losers club who kind of migrate, you know, gravitate towards the group as the story progresses. We meet Beverly, who is a ostracized and, you know, bullied uh, teenage girl and her creepy father. Uh, we meet Ben, who is the new kid who just moved in and has the unfortunate burden of being overweight. And we meet Mike, who is homeschooled and lives on the slight outskirts of town and works in a slaughterhouse. And throughout the course of the movie, those they all come together to again form the club, the losers club that will eventually confront Pennywise. Uh, let's see. They, uh, I don't want to get too far into the minutia here because there's a few things that I do want to. We also, as again, we meet them on the last day of school, which is the best day of the year if you're that age. And we also start getting bits and pieces of Pennywise it still kind of harrying kids in the town. 
Uh, despite this being in some respects kind of an idyllic town, there's this very tense undercurrent kind of running through everything. Uh, we see it attack some of the other kids. It appears to Eddie in the form of a walking... He refers to it as a leper, but there's significantly more to it. Uh, it's just like this wa- a person walking with every disease possible and again, being a bit of a germaphobe and hypochondriac, the kid freaks out like you do. Um, it appears to Stanley as this distorted paint. His father uh, has a painting of a distorted woman playing the flute. I think it's a relatively... I want to make sure... Because I think that particular painting is is not unique. I mean, it's just slightly stylized, and it freaks the kid out because he's a kid. You know, when you're a kid, very random things can kind of freak you out, and it manifests for Stanley as a living version of this, and freaks him out. It it scares Mike, who we come to find out was in the same house as his parents when it caught fire and they died and he could actually hear them in the other room burning, trying to get to him because (laughs) normal people don't become heroes. Uh, Just not on this, not in this type of scenario. And Beverly is somewhat accosted by it through the drain in her bathroom. And anyway, as, as Ben is avoided, you know, Ben's chased through the bowels of the library. Uh, in one of my, that's one of my favorite scenes in this movie, actually, is the bit where he is kind of lured down into the basement of the library with uh, Easter eggs. And then he's chased by the charred and decapitated body of one of the victims of an explosion that took place in the town. Uh, anyway, as, and, oh, I forgot to mention the, the bullies that hang around and constantly, you know, harass and abuse the losers, including uh, when Ben runs into them, uh, he's actually just escaped from them uh, after Henry has accosted him with a knife. Uh, Henry's more than a bit unhinged. Uh, they, the, the main impetus behind their excursions throughout this summer is that Ben is in deep denial about his, about George, his little brother, being dead. Because they never found a body. And he is... Again, he, he is deeply in denial about this. To the point where anyone who mentions him as being dead, or even the other missing children being dead, he kind of gives them the stink eye. Like, again, there, there's some pretty deep denial going on here. And as they, you know, get together at various instances over the summer to both protect themselves, pool knowledge, um, because, again, Bill wants to find his brother. The others are just kind of slow, have become more and more accepting of the fact that there's some very weird stuff going on here. Uh, they are They are accosted probably the best scene in the movie actually um they're accosted in bill's garage by it through a slide projector uh which was a a really terrific scene they try to confront it at the and they they, um ben has done some history and, and some research done history yeah i'm smart 
he has researched the history of the town, just kind of being lonely, you know, the lonely kid who moved into a new school without enough time to make friends before the summer break, which really sucks, by the way. And has found, you know, like records and mentions of this thing going back to the town's founding. And they track it to, it goes through the sewer system, but they find like the best way to enter the sewers near where it lives is through a particularly rundown house. Uh, they make an attempt and it goes very badly. Uh, one of them gets, Eddie gets his arm broken. And there's a lot I'm glossing over here and I apologize and I, I'll get to some of that in a second. Uh, there's a bit of a falling out between a couple of the parties involved. They all break up for the rest of the month. They all just go on to have their summers. Uh, until, and again, Beverly's father is creepy. Like there's some, there's some pretty serious undercurrents of abuse in their relationship. And then he is, it's implied, at least that's what I picked up on that uh, it feels that this group is something of a threat. So he, it kind of manipulates her father into attacking her. She is able to fend him off (laughs) with a really, really nasty shot from the top of the porcelain top of a toilet tank. And anyone who's seen the the first Saw movie knows how dangerous those things can be. Uh, But she's been abducted by Pennywise the rest of the losers reunite and go down into the sewers. There's a brief confrontation between Mike and Henry, where Henry is killed. Uh, at least that's the implication. I don't know if they'll keep him dead for the sequel. He plays a kind of important role, but there, there's other ways around it uh, from a narrative standpoint. So they have their final confrontation with Pennywise, uh, who uh, God, he shows Beverly the deadlights which is more a reference to the novel. It, it doesn't have context. Uh, just in the instance of the movie, they don't mean anything. But she is rendered catatonic. The others come down. Again, they have their final confrontation. She kind of returns to them. They're able to defeat Pennywise, who retreats further into the sewer system. Uh, Bill Fine... The... <laughs> Uh, in its lair, there's like the bodies of all of its victims just supernaturally floating around a, a pile of memorabilia, be that trophies or other stuff that just kind of washed down the sewers that it has made into its home. Uh, he finds the rain jacket that his brother was wearing and finally kind of accepts that he's dead, uh, breaks down. They Beverly was given a bit of a vision when she was catatonic and it showed them all as adults returning to defeat it for good. Now they're not sure how, you know, how much of that was real, how much of it was fake, but they all do make a very solemn promise to each other that if it does actually return, they will come back and finish it off once and for all. Uh, Movie ends with the end of chapter one, leaving us again, the other half of the novel. Um, oh, there's an after credits audio clip. I'm annoyed I didn't stay for that. All right, next time I see it. 
but yeah, if the you know end of chapter one wasn't enough of kind of an indicator that there's a sequel coming, uh, there is an audio hint at the end of the credits that kind of goes into that goes with that as well apparently. So, and again, that again, there's a lot of stuff I glossed over. A lot of it's interpersonal relationships, and when I'm just kind of doing a plot synopsis that I do want to get into here. Um, all right. Full disclosure again, I thought this was great. I I left that theater with the biggest smile on my face. I have not enjoyed a movie that much this entire year. And there have been some movies that I have deeply enjoyed, uh, but uh, nothing that – and some that I still need to see. So uh, this isn't like an – this isn't an immovable position, but this was – I loved this movie. Um. It's not as outright scary as I think a lot of people were expecting, uh, myself included. There are scares, but this is so much more about uh, about the actual characters. And what makes it, in many respects, so effective, and it's the same reason that Stephen King's stories are effective. He paints you characters that you actually care about in a world that you can believe in. And then lets you know the terrible things loose. Here, there's you know, we have the different characters and how they interact with each other. Um, there's a bit of a love triangle between Bill, Beverly, and Ben. That I don't know how they're going to play it out because it's not that big a deal in the novel, but there's things from the novel that you can't really do. Uh, translating this into a film medium. So it might wind up taking up more time when they come back as adults. It might take up less. Who knows? I mean, I I have full confidence in the people behind this after this movie. Um, There is, you know, uh, their bully, Henry Bowers, uh, his relationship with his father is touched on before he, you know, violently murders him. Uh, there's, you know, Eddie's mom as a somewhat controlling hypochondriac who has foisted some of this onto her son. Uh, so there's, uh, there's Bill still trying to process, you know, the death of his brother to the point where he, he actually hasn't. There's just, again, there's so much that is really, really good here. And... The other thing that really works in this movie's favor is tonal shifts, which is weird because a lot of people prefer, you know, if, you have a, if you're watching a horror movie, you want it to be a horror movie. If you're watching a comedy, you want it to be a comedy. And you can vary it a little bit, but there's, I don't think I've seen a movie that was, when I say supposed to be in one genre, like promoted and you, you go into it expecting it to fit within one genre that branches out so nearly effortlessly into other genres. While there are scary parts of this movie, there's a lot of humor. There's the way the kids interact with each other. There's a lot of humor to be had there. There's a lot of funny dialogue. There's a lot of just moments between characters that are heartfelt and touching. And the fact that it isn't so, it isn't contained within just you know it isn't restrained by just trying to scare you with every single frame on film 
lets it craft a, you know, a narrative and an experience that is so much more as a whole. And when things are actually scary, it means something a little bit extra because, again, you care about the characters. And you care about how they relate to each other and how they interact. And uh, it, it's really great. Um, I'm going to steal a little bit from uh, Joseph Lee, who, uh, incidentally, if you don't, if you're a fan of horror and you're not following, you either like his Facebook page, A Bloody Good Time, or read it on 411 Mania, uh, you should. You really should. Uh, I read his review of this film, and there's a couple of things he pointed out that I want to echo here. One is this movie, unlike most horror movies, like, it, it doesn't have a dark filter. It is not visually depressed. The colors are vibrant when they're meant to be. The world is bright when the sun is shining. It's not – there's a pretty serious like use of filters or filtering that's become very prevalent in contemporary horror to mute things and to darken the picture. In some cases it helps, but it's overused to the point where I question its efficacy at this juncture in history. And this one doesn't have that. And it's really interesting. The effect it has uh, to the better for, for my estimation. Um, the acting is superb it's always a it's a significant risk whenever you have child actors just in a movie in general right and mark and i have talked about that in the past having a movie that is not only like not only has a bunch of child actors but is specifically focused on the children the adults are the adult interaction in this movie is few and far between uh, which is an interesting way to represent that bit from the novel. Um, some of it was just some of it was just cut for time, I have to imagine, because there's a non-trivial amount of material to work with when adapting in, when adapting this into an into you know film. But you put all of that on literally a bunch of kids, and the fact that every single one of them delivers and holds up their end of the proverbial bargain is. Who, again, the casting director and the actual director deserve a significant amount of praise just for being able to put a movie on screen featuring almost exclusively you know, young teenagers and have it be this good, have the acting be this good. I don't think anyone's winning any awards for this, but... N- None of them do anything to detract from the quality, and they frequently just add to it. It's it's a statistical improbability. I mean, this is, you know, the unicorn of filmmaking is a movie about kids featuring only kids, again, almost exclusively, that doesn't suck out loud. Uh, again, who, everyone who did that deserves a lot of credit. Um Forgive me, I'm going to have to look up the cast sheet here so I can praise some of these people specifically. Um, Jaden, I cannot pronounce this kid's last name. Um, Lieberher, Lieber, as, again, uh, Bill and our kind of lead child role does a significantly good job. It's hard to kind of do, this is going to sound really weird, but it's hard to do a stutter correctly when you don't actually stutter. Because it 
if you are just, you know, obviously trying to be an actor playing a character with a stutter, it frequently comes across as such. Uh, the, so you know, the, the actor here and, you know, again, the writing and direct, directing of this also get a ton of credit for letting this, you know, this actor, this kid seem believable with his stutter. It's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, I think the only other like legitimate stutter I've seen on film that actually kind of works and I don't even, this wasn't even so much a stutter as it was just elements of the way uh, Edward Norton's character from uh, the score, where he plays a thief who is conning uh, a workplace as a, some kind of developmentally disabled character. And he, and that one worked, and Edward Norton is just a very, very gifted actor anyway. But it's a hard thing to do, and it, especially for a younger actor. So a lot of credit to him. Uh, a significant amount. Oh, uh, the kid who plays Ben, uh, Jeremy Ray Taylor. This might be his first like actual screen credit. It's very easy to play the fat kid as a source of, uh, or you know, overly, or you know, for just a bunch of laughs. I mean, anyone who's seen The Goonies remembers Tub. Tub. I haven't seen that movie in so long. I know you're all yelling at me right now. It's whatever. But his is played, you know, for laughs and, again, as kind of just the, you know, Chunk. At least that's what I seem to recall them calling him with Chunk. Um, and again, it's very easy to get the, oh, the poor kid's fat reaction. It's much more difficult as both an actor and, you know, writer. It's a lot more difficult a thing to pull off to make this character be someone you just want to root for not because he's fat but because but you know regardless of his weight and i think they pull that off very very well here as well and again the actor gets some significant credit for that um our lone uh, uh sophia lillis the girl who plays beverly does a really great job going from one of the things she has to navigate is going from you know confident and you know kind of boisterous when she's in public to being frightened and damaged uh you know and traumatized in some respects as you know in private or around her father and her own you know journey kind of overcoming her fear of her dad uh did a great job i want to make sure i get this kid yeah finn wolfhard um he gets a lot of credit. He was in Stranger Things. He was one of the leads. And the character that he plays in Stranger Things is in many ways the direct opposite of Richie here in this movie. And I, I don't like foisting you know, titles or expectations on actors, especially child actors. So I'm not, you know, calling him a you know, future superstar or anything like that, or, you know. But at this juncture, at this point in time, he's got some range. Again, those are very different characters, and he does them both well. Um, again, the uh, Wyatt Olaf, who plays Stan, who's 
And again, this is one of those things that it's easy to play the Jewish kid as the Jewish kid and not have there be depth to it. And there's a few characters, um, Stanley and Mike, got a little bit of the short end of the stick because there's only so much you can do in even as long as this movie is. It's what, two hours? There's my runtime number. 130. Yeah, it's a little over two hours, 135 minutes. There's still stuff that has to be, you know, cut for time and content, and mostly time. Uh, Stanley got a little bit of that. Mike uh, got that. They completely altered elements of his backstory and who he is from the novel. And I successfully, bear in mind, let me, let me caveat that, successfully as a general rule. Uh, they both do a good job with what they have. Stan is the one who is the most uncomfortable with the whole thing, and it shows. Uh, and Jack Grazer, who plays Eddie. Um, the interplay between Eddie and Richie is great. They're both very fast talkers. They give each other worlds of crap. Um the whole interplay between all of the kids is both well-written and well-acted. Um, I, I don't really have anything negative to say about that. Uh, the only, th- again, there's a few negatives here. One is that, and I'm going to specifically single out Mike here. He doesn't get a lot of screen time. And again, I understand why one must edit for time. I mean, I, for those of you who don't know, the novel is 1138 pages I seem to recall there's a lot of material there and they specifically only tell half the story in this movie but even if you parse down that and in the book they're woven together it's not like part one and part two are delineated chronologically there's a lot of weaving back and forth in the time frame Um, because there's a lot of the flashbacks are just flashbacks as characters regain memories. They, so, again, there's a lot that, even if you take just, you know, roughly half of that 1,100 pages, so call it 550 or probably 600, uh, the novel, I believe, spends a little bit more time either in the past or with world building that's going to get cut anyway. 550 to 600 pages of material is a lot to work from. And just some stuff is going to get cut down. And I wish they had found other op- – I wish there had been more opportunities for us to get to know Mike as a character. Because he is – he's the one who fe- – he doesn't feel tacked on in the sense that, oh, he's the token black kid. He's the one that – whose story we don't really get. And I I wish we did because – So, again, minor criticism there. Um, The quality of the CGI. I know, I know. I'm a CGI snob. I accept it. I've learned to live with it. There's only a couple of places in this movie where it's both noticeable and quasi-detracting. There's a scene when they're in the sewers where Stanley is nearly eaten. That is um, kind of obvious, and it's not a long sequence, which, again, the director here needs to be commended. If you don't have the budget to make these things look as realistic as possible, minimizing or otherwise obfuscating that, uh, the fact that you don't have that kind of budget 
is a really intelligent thing to do. So a lot of, so some credit there, but it's still noticeable. The one that kind of surprised me, um, the, the vision of, you know, again, the sickness, the, the sick, wasting homeless guy who torments Eddie. Surprised they didn't go practical with that one. Um, again, there's certain, I mean, you can't physically have someone who looks like the, you know, the distorted woman from the painting that threatened Stanley. I mean, the, the proportions just don't work. That has to be done with digital imagery. When you're just trying to make someone look like they are disease-ridden and slimy, uh, that's the one that kind of surprised me. They probably could have had a good, you know, makeup team that could put together something that would have worked. I mean, that same basic profile of, you know, something that is slimy and diseased has been used on the uh, sci-fi television show Face Off repeatedly. And I've seen just, you know, makeups done under the context of that challenge with time constraints and whatnot that would have worked exceptionally well in this case, rather than something purely digital, that bit of a, again, kind of tugs at you a little bit as far as being this, you know, it's not the bright neon sign to the majority of people. It was to me because again, bad CGI is one of my things, but this is one that they could have done practically. And I think it would have benefited the overall feel of the movie. Um, oh, this one's a little bit odd because um, Bill Skarsgård, who does Pennywise. Uh, first of all, I was surprised to find this out. Anytime Pennywise's eyes are looking in different directions, that's not digital. Um, apparently, the director had kind of intended to just, you know, digitally after the fact, make his eyes look in different directions. And Bill Skarsgård can just do that. Um which is great. Um, yeah, again, there's a few times like his eyes roll back into frame from different, like the, there's some things that just, you know, the physiology of the human eyeball will not accommodate, but that he could, you know, whenever they're just kind of slightly distorted or just unsettling that that's just him doing that. Uh, that's great. He gets a significant amount of credit. Uh, his voice his voice is good. It's not quite, and I, I hate to bring up this comparison because I just don't want to. Uh, in some respects, it's unfair. But I'm not sure I'm gonna. His voice is gonna stick in my head the same way that Tim Curry's from the miniseries did. Because uh, again, Tim Curry's voice were uh, Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise in general was tremendous, and his voice was. Great. So when I say it doesn't quite reach the levels of that in terms of I still like I I can still very clearly in my head hear Tim Curry's version. I'm not sure I can do that with uh, Skarsgård's. It's still very, very good. Um, His physical acting where allowed is good, which is the most in many respects, the most important part of this is can he be menacing, you know, beyond what you do with a computer? Can he just be scary as a clown. And I think he can. He did a he did a good job. I almost wanted more of him uh in the movie. At the same time, I just I I know why it was cut down the way it was and I'm not complaining about the editing. I just like 
again, there, there feels like maybe there could have even been a little bit more of him in this and it would have enhanced things, but again, I don't know. Uh, this was done so well that I'm very much nitpicking here. When we get part two, I imagine he will play much more of a character role. There's less material to work with in a lot of respects um, for the adults. So there's more opportunities for interactions with it uh, across various forms. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. If you need to flesh out some time a little bit, that's where I would. That's one of the things you can do in the sequel is a little bit more of him. A li- you can even do more care again, like I say, character stuff, more dialogue-driven confrontations. Um, could be very, very effective. Uh, but I mean, really, that's it. Like, it's minor nitpicking. This is a very well done movie. This is one of the best. Stephen King adaptations in terms of getting the overall tone and feel right. The bits about, because there's bits in the novel where, you know, they are terrorized by this extra planar demon. And then they meet up, they maybe talk about it, they process, and then they go about being kids. There is a significant amount of that in the book. So the fact that they did as much of that as they did in the film is to their, to their eternal credit. The other thing that worked really well here is, uh, again, just the subtle kind of world building. This is a, this is set in the, again, the very late eighties, um, 88 into 89, somewhere in that area, mostly the summer of 89. And they do a great job of building that world Again, in more subtle manners. Um, and because the original, I mean, the novel is uh, has the kids' flashback take place in 1956, 57. Might be 57 to 58, but pre-60s. And Stephen King's, again, Stephen King's world building and attention to detail throughout his world is one of his strengths as a writer. So when they transposed the flashback portion of this story to the 80s to be contemporary with, you know, 2017, 2018, when they're going, 19 is when the sequel is scheduled. So setting it 27 years in the past in this instance is, you know, late 80s. They just, whoever, again, the adaptation team or individual or what have you, took what he did to flesh out that world and developed rough equivalents to just a different time period so that all of the effect is still there while also very easily being in a different decade. It was a really well done job. I mean, again, if nothing else, the adaptation here was really, really tremendous, not flawless, but a lot of Stephen King adaptations have been bogged down or didn't know where to start and where to turn yet. Dark tower. I am looking squarely at you by the way. Um, but not just, I mean, there's a lot of them that have, and this one in terms of understanding tone and the underlying themes and what made the novel work, this one succeeds on pretty much every level, certainly every relevant level in adapting the material.
All right. I think that's all I've got to say about this. Um, go see it. This is a really, really good movie. Uh, I actually, again, I do kind of plan on seeing this again if I can find the time. I, I still have a few other movies I need to see, but nothing else this month. So the rest of this month, uh, Damn You Hollywood is taking off. So I don't know if uh, there's a really, I might float this to Mark as the week goes on, but and you know what, you guys too. If you want to hear like Mark be on the, you know, Mark, I don't mind rehashing this. I don't also don't mind shutting up and asking questions. But if you want, uh, because we don't have a Tuesday, I don't think we have a Tuesday show next week. I'll have to double check. But if the time slot is open, um, feel free to message Mark and let him know you'd like to hear his thoughts. Um, I have another friend, uh, another Stephen King super fan, Benjamin Cologne, who will be who hasn't seen the movie yet and. Uh, might be available so I could kind of again I, I'm perfectly happy shutting up and letting other people talk feel free to listen to our review of Star Wars um, The Force Awakens for if you don't believe me if, you let, if you're listening they're going no you talk more than just about anybody I, I am guilty of that at times but I, I am also content to just kind of curate another discussion if if that's on the table uh, so again feel free to let it let Mark know you know uh, uh, you're more than welcome to leave comments on the Rattle Legend Broadcasting Network Facebook page. And also feel free to give me – here's something I would like from you guys. I don't fly – Mark. I usually have Mark for this or someone else if something comes up. This was a very last-minute thing. Um, like I can't remember if it was Sunday or yesterday that Mark mentioned that, no, I really can't be there for the show today. Uh, so normally I'm able to kind of find either a, a replacement because I, I, I imagine nobody likes listening to me talk for, you know, 90 minutes straight. It, it's got to be deeply uncomfortable. So any, uh, you know, suggestions you guys have for in the future, if I wind up doing this by myself, I'd love to hear them. Uh, anything that might help you guys, you know, process if there's uh, you know, anything like that. I, I am open to constructive criticism in this respect. But again, from a craft standpoint, I have I'm I have very minor complaints and just a lot a lot of praise. So uh, go see this movie. And odds are you did. This thing had a pretty significant opening, which is going to lead us into the money. Uh, there it is. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. All right. Um, to the surprise of no one, it won the weekend. Uh, this had been an extraordinarily depressed box office for the last, like, three weeks. I believe, can't remember what came out last week, but, like, the last couple of weeks have barely been in the uh, double digits for, like, the top of the box office. And I think last weekend, hit, I mean, like, last weekend, Hitman's Bodyguard either had double or single digits, in terms of millions, mind you, not like one or two dollars, but less than ten million, and was still, I believe, second place. Um, it smashed all of those. Its opening weekend was one hundred and let me find it thirty. A uh, worldwide total of opening weekend of 189 million. Jeez, that's more than I thought. 
this thing smashed all kinds of records. Um, this was the largest, this was the second largest opening for an R-rated stateside. Because in the United States, it was 123 million. Worldwide, it was 189. In the United States, this is the second largest opening for an R-rated movie ever. Um, it was just behind Deadpool by like 9 million. This is the largest fall opening, I believe, of any movie. Where they draw the line for fall is weird. Um, yeah, this this might have actually broken the record if like half of Florida had not been on lockdown. Uh, there's a very real chance that just what came, the extra money from the state of Florida. Had Hurricane Irma not been hitting, would have could have pushed it over the top. Jeez. Um, okay, this is the okay. So again, second largest wide release opening for an R-rated movie ever, largest opening for an R-rated horror ever, largest opening for any horror with an MPAA rating ever. Again, I believe largest fall opening ever. And again, I'm not quite sure where they draw the line about summer to fall. Um, I, I just. Just for my own sake of curiosity, I don't know. It might just be Labor Day. Just anything after Labor Day, but between like Labor Day and Halloween is fall. I don't know. Because there's a, there's a couple of other big movies coming out later that I would categorize as having fall releases, but I don't know. Again, where they draw the line in November might be odd. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, biggest... Um, this is this thing was a monster again. Just the United States, 123 million. I think worldwide, 189 million. And this thing only had a budget of 35 million dollars. That blew my mind when I looked that up. Not because like because it doesn't look like a 35 million dollar movie. This is that's really weird to say, mind you. But you know again. I, I've talked in the past about other movies like this thing had a hundred million dollar budget. What'd they spend it on? This thing only had a $35 million budget. It looked and and it had the overall like look and feel of a movie with a, a, I was thinking, you know, 50 to 60 million. I know that like I knew beforehand it wasn't, you know, a hundred million dollar, you know, super project, but even after seeing it, it was okay. You know, that's a, you know, $60 million movie-ish, just if I had to guess based on visuals, and they were even lower than that. This this thing is a smash hit financially. Um, The overall weekend, let me back up my list here, was not very, I mean, again, you have, here's the thing, you have it, $123 million. Number two, Home Again, with a whopping $8.6 million. Hitman's Bodyguard with 4.9, Annabelle Creation with 4.1, Wind River with 3.2, and do we even care about things that you know below that? This was again. This has been a very depressed couple of months, a couple of weeks, and this thing, this movie, just breathed a significant amount of life into the box office. I just got confirmation that a friend of mine agrees with me uh, about the. Uh, I understand about this, so uh, nice to have my opinion validated. Uh, sorry. 
Yeah, I, I don't know anyone who's had a legitimately bad thing to say about this. Um, next week, what do we have? Um, geez, those are all small releases. Certainly nothing I've ever heard of. All right, hang on. Uh, let me bring up my other list here. Ah, spell big guy. Um, okay, next week we have American Assassin. I don't think too much is going to come of that, which is sad because Michael Keaton's awesome, but it also has Taylor Kish. So, yeah. uh, Mother. Yeah, it, it is free and clear. Uh, through this upcoming weekend. Uh, I imagine it will repeat. The 22nd, we have both Kingsman, the Golden Circle, and the Lega Ninjago movie. First of all, don't see the Lega Ninjago movie. I I can't express to you all enough how much we don't need Lego movies on the big screen. Just please. Uh, Kingsman, the Golden Circle will probably win that weekend, though. But it's got another... Again, this thing is already significantly profitable. I would be very surprised if it even dropped out of the top 10 for the rest of the month. Um, once we, I mean, once we get to October, bets start falling off because you have Blade Runner. Um, there's a very, there's a kids movie that's going to be coming out that same day. Then you have um, the four, I don't know. The 13th is kind of dead. Um, October, there's some. You have both Geostorm and the Snowman. I would so much rather review the Snowman. So much, but Geostorm, I I imagine it's going to fall. You have Leatherface coming out. So by the time we get into October, things change. But this is a top ten movie for basically the rest of the month, if not top five the rest of the month. Um, it's September is kind of dead, guys. Uh, again, massive success. Uh, they were already going to have a again. They're already going to have a sequel lined up. Uh, if there were any doubts as to that, the profit margins on this thing are going to dispel them instantly. Uh, again, this thing only had like it only needed seventy million dollars to become profitable. It got that in no time. Uh, would. The studio here is dealing with a major financial success. Which studio is this, by the way? Uh, New Line and Warner Brothers. Uh, so they've got they've got a significant hit on their hands here, and they should be proud. And this thing will not be leaving the box office anytime soon. And again, just a bad month, just a dead month in so many respects. All right. Well, it's time for your favorite bit and mine. You're going to get these live as I hump them up on Rotten Tomatoes. So, uh, Archer, I don't know if you're listening. I would love for you to make a quick audio clip of the beginning of the old DX theme of Are You, know, Are you Ready? with followed by uh, this everyone's favorite sound bit. Oh no, God! No, God, please, no! 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 All right, it is a smashing success, critically as well. Um, 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, 89% audience score. If we switch over to top critics, yeah, we're still 80s. Um, Most people liked this. I think most intelligent people liked this. But because this this segment is not about, oh, you people have fair and balanced opinions. You're clearly good at your jobs. This is about me finding people who are morons. So let's start here. 
Um, Kim Newman of Sight and Sound. This it feels a little too much like Pache. I know that word, but I can't. I've never like had to read it and pronounce it at the same time. My apologies. With its window into an 80s informed by King as much as any other creator, creator, but a little further along the path to cartoonishness than the novel or the TV miniseries. Okay. I, I got to say this. There's a lot good about the 1990 TV miniseries. Please bear everything what I'm about to say in mind. Keep that in mind. That being said, a significant portion of people have serious rose-colored glasses about that thing. Not that it's bad. This is not one of those things that you remember being great and isn't. There's some good, there's some very, very good things about it. But this was not more cartoony than, I mean, have you all just blocked from your mind the final confrontation with their horrible spider monster? Because that thing looked awful. I have all the good things about that series. That thing looked awful. Um, there's a, I would, again, and some of that's a product of, you know, a 1990s made-for-TV miniseries budget. I get it. I would just fundamentally disagree with that perspective on this being more cartoony. Uh, again, certainly the novel, again, not at all. But benefits of a novel are... Again, some of that some of that's just lost in translation. But no, you, your perspective there is deeply misinformed. I would encourage you to watch the miniseries again if that's your perspective, um, because problems. Uh, let's see here. Okay, Tom Schoen of the Sunday Times in the UK. Machete's movie feels proficient but purposeless. An amiable enough mixture of 1980s nostalgia, adolescent empowerment, and an R-rated fright that, for all their crunch, never quite seemed to put the shiver into your bones. Okay, let me let, let me start here. What scares you is unique to you, much as it's unique to me, unique to everyone. There's certainly large commonalities, but if you if you watch this entire movie and were never uneasy or scared, I think there's just something wrong with you. Now, whether that translates into, you know, you having to check under your bed for, you know, a clown, whole other story, and one that I would agree most of the scares in this film are contained to the theater. At least that was my experience. Yours might be different. I don't want to speak for everybody. But to say that, you know, it has never achieved that is... It's foisting your experience into the objective, which is one of those things I really I get on critics all the time for. All you have to do is phrase your sentences and your argument in a slightly different light, and there's no issue. Um, oh, we have a top critic here. Um, Richard Brody of The New Yorker. Oh, I, I have come to loathe that publication. Uh, the movie is not terrifying, but blandly edifying. It scares... It scares, foreshadows as if by telegram are delivered less effectively than its life lessons. uh, As though that somehow, like, diminishes it? Uh, I, I really... We need more horror movies like this in the sense that 
there are certain films that, in genres generally, this is a genre thing, that if it strays from its preconceived limitations, people don't know what to do. They don't know what to do with a comedy that is more heartfelt than slapstick. And they don't know what to do with a horror movie that deals with actual characters and their relations than in jump scares. This is a much more atmospheric movie than a lot of horror. And not e- and even then, it's not the most atmospheric you know, horror movie of all time. That's probably still Alien or something akin to that that's just kind of relentless. But it's much more, again, about the characters and them dealing with this horrible, terrifying circumstance. That that means it's uh, that's fundamentally misinformed, sir. All right. Um, Dana Barbudo of the Patriot Ledger. Um, its bark is worse than its bite. That doesn't even... What's your context for this? Who thought this should be the lead-in? I mean, on the other hand, what did you, like... uh, I mean, what were you expecting? What were your expectations? I'm not going to click on that because I'm not going to dignify that choice of sentence with a click. Um, Okay, we have Dennis Schwartz of Oz's... World movie reviews, another Stephen King novel made into a film that looks good but fails to deliver the chills his readers must have felt. Ugh. Okay. That perspective, let me start here. You're probably one of those people who didn't realize that The Shawshank Redemption was a Stephen King adaptation. Pigeonholing his work into just horror or even just a specific type of horror is massively misinformed. If your point is, I thought the book was scary or fair play, I'm not going to argue with you. If your point is, well, this didn't deliver scares on the same level and it tries to be things the book isn't, I would urge you to reread the book, which is a non-trivial investment of time and energy. I'm aware of that, but this is just fundamentally flawed. Oh, for the love of... Okay, Muschietti serves up yet another tale of a group of misfit BMX-riding kids around small-town America trying to solve a mystery. If you're... Okay, this is Andrea Lee of the Daily Express UK. If you're just bored of that basic premise that, you know, movies like E.T., The Goonies, uh, stuff like Stranger Things has done, that's fair. Any, you know genre or archetype or you know story setting can become tiresome if overdone i can appreciate that it really shouldn't impact your ability to review the film on its own merits though i'm tired of stories about kids in small town america riding around on bikes solving a mystery okay how does that play to the actual content like regardless of your personal you know ennui about the subject that that's not a valid criticism. Like it just isn't. <laughs> and more importantly, none of these kids ride BMX bikes. I don't know what you. I, I don't know if you just believe BMX is a catch-all 
synonym for bicycle because it isn't, you moron. But uh, I don't know. To me, the fact that they're telling this type of story within the confines of this basic narrative structure is neither a plus nor a minus. And if you want to make a greater comment about, okay, this is kind of back in vogue and I wish it wasn't, that's fine. You can actually say that. But allowing that to impact how you viewed a film and what you thought of the craft of the film as a whole is deeply unfair to the actual film. I've yelled about that in the past, and I've, to be fair, I have been guilty of that in the past, and I've worked very hard to curtail that. Oh, for the love of... Okay, Luke Buckmaster of the Daily Review slash Crikey. A deathly serious, exhaustingly banal, cut-and-dried cash grab. If Mark were here, this is where he would say, get him. I don't know where to start with this. I genuinely do not. Like, you just strung together a bunch of four-syllable words for the sake of trying to sound superior so no one would actually question your perspective. This is not a cash grab. This is not deathly serious. I mean, come on! Yes, there are moments of seriousness in the movie. There's death in the movie, for the love of... That doesn't mean it's completely devoid of levity and humor and all the other things that make it, that make the world a vibrant place. I would sincerely take issue with exhaustingly banal. Again, I, I don't know where to begin critiquing something that is just as flat out wrong as that statement. And this is not a cut and dried cash grab. I've said that about a few other movies this year because I believe it accurate. That is not an accurate representation of what went on here. If this were a cut-and-dried cash grab, no one would have cared during the process of making this when it is so transparent that everyone involved actually gave a damn about the finished product. Like, I don't know where you... I don't know where you got this particular... You must have been high or slept through this movie. Pure interesting by being different. Um, oh, this is interesting. Uh, Stephanie Zacharek of Time Magazine, top critic, doesn't cut very deep and isn't very scary. I, again, if you expected unrelenting terror, the type that you get from something like Alien or the Babadook or the first paranormal activity, I suppose you could enter that into the discussion there. If that's what you were expecting, no. This is different from that. Very. That doesn't discount when it is scary. And if it didn't scare you, that's fine. Say it didn't scare me, not it isn't scary. This is like basic. When we stop as a society teaching basic rhetoric in public schools, we lost a, a non-trivial amount of depth to our society. Um, as far as doesn't cut very deep, I I can't disagree with that more. You didn't find, you know, emotion behind, you know, either Bev dealing with her father or Bill trying to process the death of his little. You you just you were heartless enough that you didn't find anything of emotional depth within these these non these significant portions of the film. I I can't help you here. 
Uh, there's just part, half of your argument is foisting your perspective into the objective, and the other half is just fundamentally mis, misguided. Um, Marianne Johnson. Johansson? That could be pronounced either way. I'll go with Johansson. Of Flick Philosopher, the Goonies stand by me and Poltergeist went into a blender with a pinch of E.T. and John Hughes to smash into a mess of retro 80s mush. Again, I really, really have to... This isn't just 80s nostalgia for the sake of 80s nostalgia, people. Does this bear similarities to, you mentioned, E.T., the Goonies, and Stand By Me? Sure. I mean, again, sure. But I and I don't know why you decided that John Hughes, sorry, Poltergeist. Poltergeist? How did you connect Poltergeist to this? Were you just Googling horror movies from the 80s and stumbled upon that? I, that what? I also don't know why you wanted to add John Hughes. I mean, I suppose I loosely do, given his, you know, proclivity for making movies about teenagers. But there's, uh, no, just you're wrong. Oh, Josh, 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 Josh Terry of the Deseret News from Salt Lake City. I might have to drive to find this gentleman and beat him with a dead fish. Um, most of the time, director Andrew. Andy Machete telegraphs his passes, setting for settling for content that looks scary more than it is scary. Okay, there's a degree of fairness that needs to be acknowledged here, but only in the context of you're looking for jump scares. If you went into this movie, as I do frequently with horror movies, aware of how directors set up you know, again, things that are meant to startle you. Yeah, elements of it are tele are elements of it are are there that to be picked up on. But if you if you believe that the sum total of horror is jump scares, I don't know what to say to you. I genuinely so you know a bit of a jump scare is coming. I mean, A, is it still effective kind of regardless? I know there's a, there's a legitimate argument that can be had about if you know a jump scare is coming, is it actually a jump scare? That, that's fair. There's, again, there's a debate that can be had there reasonably. But if you don't understand how a movie can scare you beyond startling you with a loud noise or a sudden cut, again, I, I, I don't know how to approach you on this topic. And this is, again, this is more than just a horror movie. So I just, uh, I I don't know. I don't know what to do with you. And let me see if I can, let me find one more to go off on. Oh, we've got a top critic here. Um, All right. Yeah, let's go with this one. Bilge Ebery of the Village Voice, top critic. Even those unfamiliar with the book might wonder why this kids-only manifestation of it feels strangely toothless on the horror front. Again, I must question A, your expectations, and B, what you... Ex- Again, some of this is expectation, but I, uh, I'd just be repeating myself. 
there is more to this than horror, and that doesn't make it worse. It actually makes it better. Um, okay, yeah, here, here's one I can just, like, I fundamentally disagree with, because this guy, like, is saying some of what I'm saying, but arriving at the wrong conclusion. Matthew Lacona of the San Diego Reader, top critic. Horror's power in general, and I'm, I'm actually going to give him more credit than he's actually writing here, does not come from monstrous imagery, but from the encounter with evil. Machete seems to miss that, going for teeth over terror from the get-go. I mean, did you not see this? Again, the main struggling to deal with this just and trying to process his final encounter with it, trying to, you know, deal with the loss of his brother. How do you miss this? <sighs> I I don't know. I'm I'm done. That's it. This is a this is this is why this is so annoying from uh, from this guy in particular. This is a someone who clearly has at least a fundamental grasp of what is supposed to make things scary. And it's not just jump scares. And rather ignores or just somehow missed the parts of this movie that are designed to breathe more life into this being a fully traumatic and terrifying in places encounter with something. And that's worse. I mean, if you're just a moron who doesn't get it, who thinks horror is all jump scares and torture porn, you're just an idiot. Like, I... But I can accept that you're just an idiot. I can pat you on the head and send you on your way, and, and you know, so be it. This is someone with, like a, again, a baseline understanding of these things that missed their application. That, to me, is a much greater tragedy. All right, that's going to be my final thought here. Uh, as far as that goes... Um, uh, and that's just deeply frustrating. There, there's somebody out there with a baseline understanding who fails to understand implementation. Ugh. Ugh. All right. All right. That's going to be it for me again. Just go see the movie. Great movie. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for sticking with me uh, through this. And this is always a bit rough when I have to go solo. So thank you for bearing with me through this. Um, I don't have the full schedule in front of me. Uh, I know that the show that was to be airing this Thursday is also canceled. Uh, that was Mark and Sean doing something. I forget exactly what I believe they had non-trial scheduled. But again, Mark dealing with the aftermath of a hurricane. Um, <laughs> so, and, but we'll have more stuff coming up in the near future. Following the liking the Rattleton Broadcasting Network Facebook page is your best way to kind of stay up to date on things like that so feel free to stay up to date there there is no damn you hollywood next tuesday because there's none for the rest of the month because there's nothing else coming out worth talking about um you can find me sundays hosting the 411 ground and pound radio show this last week we looked back at ufc 215 looked ahead to ufc fight night 116 team listen to the show just i don't want to if you're interested in MMA, listen to the show. We talked about why we disagreed with the decision in the main event. We yelled at a referee and some cornermen. Uh, good times were had by all. Hopefully it's modif- hopefully it's somewhat edifying and enjoyable. So 
This coming Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we will be reviewing Fight Night 116, and which is just kind of a card, and previewing Fight Night 117. Um, yeah, which is just another card. Jeez, we're in a rough stretch. We're in a pretty rough stretch. So tune in for that. Um, and I think that's everything for me. I will double check with Mark about you know scheduling for other things because I believe there is still something next Tuesday. I don't believe I'm a part of it. But again, if, if it winds up being completely free, I will. And Mark's in a position to do the show. I will, you know, pitch a, a truncated version of this show where just you know he and I talk about it, uh, and something like that. Anyway, until then, uh, that's all my plugs. Always feels weird when I get to plugs and it's just me and it's over in like 20 seconds. So. Thank you all for listening. Always appreciated. Thank you for your feedback. Uh, again, always appreciated. Uh, much love to you people out there for your support. It means a lot to us, so thank you. Until next time, I'm Robert Winfrey saying, please, reminding you all to continue to be well, be safe, and behave. Ah, there it is. Good night, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.